Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Titus chapter 2, and I entitled this actually The Attractive Gospel. Um, you know, uh, so going through my own personal devotions, uh, this past week I just finished Second Kings. And uh, I was reading the last few chapters of Second Kings, and if you're familiar with that, um, that basically, you know, from Josiah was a pretty good king of Judah, and then his sons, they weren't so good. And the last few chapters of Second Kings, it kind of just gives a, 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 an accounting of these last few kings in Judah before the Babylonian, uh, before 586 B.C., when the Babylonians finally completely uh, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and they took all the people um, out. Um, there had been kind of some successive, uh, it didn't all happen at one time. There had been a few uh, times when the Babylonians hauled off different groups of people, but Towards the end of Second Kings, it's, it's like it's the end. And one of the things that struck me when I was reading it was, um, you know, because I've been working through um, the Old Testament as I'm, you know, my daily thing. And so it wasn't that long ago that I was reading about how Solomon was building the temple. You know, and, and if you go in there and there's all the description of the gold that's just throughout the temple and the bronze laver that's a huge thing that's outside they call it the sea it's probably big as a sea but it's this huge base and then it's sitting on oxen carts and all these things and it's just after you're just reading it going wow that must have been man you know magnificent and then you get to the end of kings and in the end of kings it starts saying, you know, the Babylonians cut up this bronze thing, they hauled up that thing, they, and you think, wow, here's something that God had told the children of Israel to build, and, and, you know, it was the place where he would meet with the children of Israel, and now he's just letting it be destroyed. And, and it's like, it's how sad, and, and it must have been hard for the inhabitants of Judah during that time to watch the decline of their nation, especially the older people that knew what things were like before. And it's reminded me of where we're at today. You know, we are watching the decline of our nation. And if you've been around for any length of time, which most of us have, it's hard to watch what's taking place. Um, and so what, what can we do? Well, we still have rights. Praise God, we still have rights and we should exercise our rights. But the most important thing we can do is to pray. And I know believers are gathering all around, praying especially for what's going on in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and that area, and what's going on in our nation. And it, it's sad to see. But so what can we do? We can exercise our rights. We can pray, we, and we should be praying. That's, in fact, that should be the first thing we do. But the other thing we can be doing is making the gospel attractive because there's a lot of confusion out there right now. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and for you and I as believers to have that, have that calm peace, you know, that peace that passes understanding. We know God's in control. We know what the end, I mean, we read the book of Revelation. We know what's going to happen, and we see it starting to fall into place. And we can be those that the, attract, the gospel should be attractive through us. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to do. He's to teach the churches on the island of Crete to have an attractive gospel. And so what do I mean by an attractive gospel? What does an attractive gospel look like? What an attractive gospel looks like is when people who believe and profess the gospel, they live how they believe and what they profess. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I believe this and that, and you know, you have all these great theories and these great understandings of scripture and stuff. But if it's not, if it doesn't become evident in your life, 
do you really believe it? I mean, you know, there's, there's this disconnect there. And so for you and I, the gospel is attractive by itself, <laughs> what Jesus Christ has done for us. But for you and I as believers, we can make either the gospel very attractive to those around us, or they can look and go, well, that's Christianity? I don't have anything to do with it. And so this morning, Paul was telling Titus to teach the, teach the people on the island of Crete how to live their lives according to the gospel. And so that's what this portion is that we're looking at in chapter 2. And so we're going to begin with chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes this to Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. There's a Bible translation that says this, speak up for the right living that goes along with true Christianity. You know, Christianity, you know, does our lives match it? Another translation says, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. And so Titus is here to teach, told to instruct, to teach different groups of people. And the first one he's told to teach are the older men. Verse 2, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, Sound in faith, in love, in patience. So the very first thing he says is to teach them to be sober. Now the word sober, it literally means sober. You know, don't, don't be drunk. Don't be getting drunk and, uh, you know, being overcome by that. But it also not only means literally sober, but it also means to be circumspect. To be careful and consider all the circumstances and the possible consequences to what you're doing in life. And if you think about somebody who's not sober, somebody who's inebriated, they usually do things, they don't think about the consequences. They do things that later on they're like, man, I can't believe I did that. You know, I was under the influence of alcohol and stuff. And they do things that a normal sober person wouldn't do. And so that's what he's telling the people to live that way, live soberly, the, the old man, older man, excuse me. I think a, a good word maybe to describe that would just be to be prudent. Prudent in what, how you live your life. So teach them to be sober. And then he says, teach them to be reverent. And that word reverent is the Greek word. It comes, it's the word semno, excuse me. And it comes from the word sebomai, which means to worship or to venerate. And so semnos means to be venerable. Calling forth respect through age, character, and attainments. We would probably say be, be dignified. Act dignified. Now, the interesting thing is, so Paul is telling Titus to teach the old, older men this. Why is he telling them to teach that? Because aren't all older men dignified? No, the answer is no, they're not. It's something that has to be taught. It doesn't automatically come with age. I like what the complete word study dictionary, it's one of the tools I have on my, my study app that helps me with some of this stuff. It says this about Semnos. It says it represents not only earthly dignity, but that which is derived from a higher citizenship, a heavenly one, which is the possession of all believers. And then it goes to say something that I thought was kind of interesting. It says, There lies something of a majestic and awe-inspiring qualities in Semnos, which does not repel, but rather invites and attracts. To be dignified. As, a, as an older believer, as an older male believer, there's something attractive about that. It doesn't repel. And so he also says to teach them to be uh, temperate. 
And that word temperate is, it, this is what it basically boils down to. It means to be self-disciplined in one's freedom, self-restrained in all passions and desires. I don't know about you, but, you know, I, as a father, I had four young children. Well, they're not young anymore, but I had four young children. And, you know, I could control them and, you know, I, I could discipline them and I could kind of, you know, guide them and stuff. And, uh, you know, I could do that as a, as, a, as a father. The harder thing is controlling myself and guiding myself. And so self-discipline, it's not an easy thing. Our nature goes against it. And so that's something we are to strive at. So to, to be self-disciplined in our freedoms. You know, Paul talks about all the freedoms that we have in Christ. Yeah, you're, you're free in Christ. But should you be exercising those freedoms? That's, that's the, another question. And to be self-restrained in all passions and desires. And then he says... Teach them to be sound in faith, in love, in patience. The word sound, it really means healthy, basically. That's what it literally means. Metaphorically, it means to be firm or pure in respect to Christian doctrine and life. You know, as an older man and, and older men, you know, they've been around the block a few times. I was, I was thinking back to when we were first married and um, had this guy that came to church and... and uh, uh, it was an older gentleman, nice, seemed like a really nice guy. And one day he came and said, hey, can, can me and a friend come over to your house, meet with you and your wife? And I thought, oh, they just want to get to know us. I'm like, yeah, sure, come over. Well, here it was a marketing thing. And this guy, his friend, didn't even come to the church, but he was uh, marketing this insurance thing. And uh, he just, he got me going. And I was a young guy. I was kind of impressionable. And, and uh, I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, basically. And, and uh, I think back now and I go, man. If he had come to me today, <laughs> I would have told him what he could have done. You know, he'd just take a long walk on a short pier. No, I wouldn't have done that. But <laughs> no, but basically, I would have told him to fly a kite, you know, basically. Because it, anyway, it's a long story. I won't get into that. But, you know, once you're older, you've been around the block a few times. You know, you're not, you're not quite as gullible. Um, you're hopefully wiser. I've met some older people that were definitely not wise, but generally speaking, hopefully you're wiser. But many times an older person is kind of set in their ways. They're kind of like, you know, this is the way I've been doing it, and I've, this has worked for me, and this is my way I do things. And, and they get kind of firm and set in their ways. Well, Paul here is telling Titus to teach the older men to go ahead and be set and firm, but to be firm in love, in faith, and in patience. If you're going to be firm in anything, man, if you're going to be set in your ways, be set in your ways regarding the faith. Be set in your ways regarding love and patience. That patience is a word, you've probably heard of it, hupomone, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it means to persevere or to remain under. It's a bearing up uh, under an endurance as to things or circumstances. And some of you may know this, but the Strong's defi uh, definition is to be cheerful or hopeful endurance or constancy and so Titus is told to teach the older men to be patient and again you know I'm patient in some areas in my life but in other areas I've, I've grown less patient as I've gotten older and so it doesn't necessarily patience doesn't necessarily come with age the older we get the more impatient we can get and so Paul says to teach them to be sound in faith love and patience then he moves on to another group and he says to teach the older women. Verse 3. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, 
not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women. So he says to teach them to be reverent in behavior. And that refers to their demeanor. You think of it as how somebody carries themselves. And how are they to carry themselves like people engaged in sacred duties? Just, that's how you carry yourself. You're, 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 you're serving the king. You're serving the Lord. That's how you should be living your, carry yourselves with that demeanor is what he's basically teaching. Teach them to be reverent in behavior. And then he says, teach them uh, to not be slanderers. The word slanderers is the Greek word diabolos. And if you know the Spanish word, it says diablo, which is the devil. And if you look at the Greek, that's what diabolos means. It means a false accuser. It's speaking badly of or telling lies about someone so as to damage their reputation. It's always accusing someone of something. It may be true, because, you know, the Bible calls the devil, you know, he's, he's our accuser, right? He accuses us. And sometimes his accusations, at least for me, probably not for you guys, but for me, sometimes they're accurate. Yeah, I did blow it. Yeah, I did say something really lousy to my wife. Yeah, I sinned in that area. You're, you're absolutely right. Praise God, Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. And I, you know, I repent of my sin and, and I'm forgiven of that. So sometimes they're true or they might be untrue. But the thing is, the point of this is accusing someone, true or untrue, before other people. We would call that gossip. Don't, 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 don't gossip about people. You know what happens, and I, I don't know if you've ever been in a new work situation. I've, I've changed jobs off and on in my career. Different, I wasn't always a pastor, and so, you know, different jobs that I've done. And, uh, you know, you, you're the new guy, and you meet, and there's all these people that have been there a long time before you, and sometimes someone will say, hey, watch out for that person. Man, they, and they'll, they'll give you the skinny on that person, you know, watch out for them. And, uh, you know, it, you may have never met this person, but all of a sudden you've got an opinion. Oh, yeah, I better watch that person, you know. That's the problem with slandering, because someone may not have had that opinion about that person. And all of a sudden you're saying, hey, you know, this person's this or that. Now all of a sudden I have an opinion, too. And so that's what, you know, that's what the Lord hates. He hates slander. And so don't. Uh, teach them not to be slanderers. Then he says, teach them not to be given, uh, not to be given to much wine. And that word given is the Greek word duolo, duolo, I don't know, if, again, it, it, it's where we get doulos, which is a bondservant, you know, it's, a, it's to become a servant. And that's what this word means. Teach them not to become a servant to wine, to much wine. Don't become enslaved to much or frequent drinking of alcohol. Don't let that be your master, basically. And then he says, teach them instead to be teachers of good things. So there's a couple bad things, a couple negative things, right? Don't be a slanderer. Don't be given to much wine. You know, it's like negative, negative. But now here's a positive thing. Teach them instead to be teachers of good things. Robertson's word picture says this, teaching good and beautiful things a sorely needed mission. And, you know, that's true today. I don't know when Robertson's Word Pictures was, was developed, but I'm sure it was many years ago. And, and back in that day, older women teaching younger women was needed. How much more is it in our culture, in our day today? So who are they to teach? They're to teach the young women. 
Now, what's interesting about this, Paul is, okay, he's telling Titus, right? Titus, tell, teach the old men this, t- or older, I shouldn't say old, because, you know, when I, teach the older, the more matured, advanced, whatever. Teach the older men to be this way. Teach the older women to be this way. But he doesn't say, hey, teach the younger women. You notice that he does that. He says, have the older women teach the younger women. And I think that's very wise advice from Paul. Because Titus, I don't know for sure, but I'm thinking at this time he wasn't a very old person. So he was a younger guy. Um, We don't know if he was married at this point. And so it would just be a bad situation for Titus to be in there discipling some single woman. You know, it would just be a bad situation. And so Paul in his wisdom says, have the older women teach the younger women. That should be true in any church or any counseling situation at least in our church if if you as a woman need counseling you can come and talk to me but we're not going to go meet in an office by alone i'm not going to go out and get coffee with you or anything like that. i'm going to say you know what here my wife you know you can talk to my wife or we can talk together but so anyways it's just why it's just wise to be to do that precautionary so what were they to teach the young women Verse 4, the second half of verse 4. To admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. So let's kind of break that down. First of all, to love their husbands and to love their children. Now, the context obviously would be a young married woman, right? It'd be somebody who's married, Teach them how to love their children and love their husbands. And you might say, wait a minute. Don't they already love their husbands? I mean, wouldn't a mother love their children? And, you know, in some, except for some extreme, every once in a while you read about some extreme situation, but under most circumstances, a mother loves their children. And absent of marital issues, a a wife loves her husband. But Paul is, again, Paul is saying to teach the young women to love their husbands. Again, there's, there's something that maybe isn't quite necessarily a natural thing. The word love, uh, there's, you know, the Greek used different definitions for love. One, one word they use is storge. Storge is known as familial love. That would be the love of, that a mother would have for a child or the love of a brother for a brother, or a brother for a sister, or a parent. You know, it's that familial love. And that kind of comes naturally. Paul's not telling them to love with storge, familial love, because that's probably something coming natural in most cases. He's talking about agape love. That's the highest form of God, and it's God's love, basically. And so how does, how does an older woman teach a younger woman that? Well, there's examples in scriptures, definitely. There's explanations in scriptures. And then these older godly women, they've got some practical experience. So they could say, hey, this is how it worked out in my life, in my marriage. And so the, can you see the value of someone imparting their, their experience, maybe, the, maybe what they've learned by mistake, imparting that to a young mother. Hey, this, this is how you should love your husband. This is how you should love your children. He, she was, uh, they're also to teach the older women, uh, excuse me, the older women were to teach the younger women to be discreet. And what's interesting about that is that's the same Greek word as temperate in verse 2. Again, self-disciplined in one's freedom, self-restrained in all passions and desires. Exact same word. 
So teach the younger women to be discreet, to be temperate. And then teach the older, or excuse me, have the older women were to teach the young women to be chaste. And that means pure from carnality. I mean, literally in the case, especially for an unmarried woman, it literally means chaste. But also, it also means modesty. And, you know, you think about our culture today, and we live in a very immodest culture right now. How important is it for an older, mature Christian woman to teach these younger women, hey, you know, how to be modest? How to be modest in how they live and how they dress and all the things that they do. How to be chaste. So these are very valuable things. Then the older women were to teach the younger women to be homemakers. And that would be, homemaker literally means a keeper at home, one who looks after domestic affairs with prudence and care. Again, the context, I think, is young married women. How to, how to keep a house. I don't want to embarrass my wife, but I remember one time there was an older lady in our church that uh, kind of took Teresa, my wife, under her wings and kind of just helped her with some, not that she was a bad mother or a bad wife at all. In fact, she's great. But there were some practical things. Just, hey, you know, this is how I do stuff. And so my wife kind of adopted some of those things. And it was great. It was a, it was a great time, a great, a great experience. Um, and that's really what should be taking place in every church. It was a blessing that we were we were a lot you know that we were in that kind of a situation at that time. So the older women were to teach the young women to be homemakers. The older women were to teach the young women to be good. Now that's a very broad term, good. Uh, here's what Thayer's dictionary means. It means to be useful, beneficial, to be pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy to be excellent, distinguished, to be upright, honorable. Teach the women to do that. <laughs> that's, quite a, that's quite a list. I was thinking about that. All these different qualities that good represents, or what good means. And it made me think of this one proverb. Proverbs 18, verse uh, 22. It says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So teach these women to be good, to be that good person that the husband's going to just, man, I'm blessed to have you as a wife. Listen, if you want to attain a different station in life, and what I mean, I'll give you an example, is if you're unmarried this morning and you, man, you, man, I just can't wait to be married. I want to be married. Um, I'm going to give you some advice. And I think it's a sage advice. It's not thus saith the Lord, but it's thus saith Pastor Don. If you want to be married later on, that's your goal. Prepare yourself now for marriage then. Start, start accumulating these characteristics. Start preparing yourself now for that eventuality later. And it's not just advice for uh, the, the single people here. For men, you know, if you want to be that kind, grandfatherly, wise old man later, man, start being kind and wise now. Because you're not going to just, all of a sudden, it's like you turn 65 or 70, poof, now you're a wise, old, kind guy. That's not going to happen. It only happens as you're developing that in your character, in your life, as you're going through life. So if you want to be recognized as that man, that just that, that, that great old grandpa that everybody loves, start being that right now as a young person. Start being wise. Start being kind. Titus is to teach the old woman these things too. 
And you might think, man, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I love sweet old ladies. You know, you, you see them, sometimes you meet them, and they're just the sweetest thing. I was driving behind a person the other day, and they were driving really slow. And uh, if you can ask my wife, I'm, I, I become a little, I get in the flesh when I drive. And I get a little impatient, you know, I'm sorry. I just, I take off my pastor hat, and now I'm the commuter, you know. And I'm like, I grew up in California, so it's in my blood. But anyways, you know, it's like, oh, this person's driving me nuts. They're going so slow. I just want to pass them, you know. And I... And, you know, I'm tempted to get on their tail so they know that they're really going slow. And I thought, you know, and you can't, you can't even, it's like it's a driverless car because you can't, <laughs> I'm thinking, you know what, it's probably a little old lady driving. And I'm like, I'm, and, and, and right away I'm thinking about my mom because up until a few years ago, my mom, this little short lady, she was driving. And I drove with her once and so I was like this, you know, that, she doesn't drive anymore. But, but uh, uh, I thought, you know, it's just like my mom, it reminded me of my mom. I thought, you know what? I could just imagine my mom being there and some jerks behind her, you know, getting right off a foot from a bumper. And, you know, I thought, you know, I'll just back off and I'll go against my nature and I'll just back off. And, and uh, sure enough, she turns the corner and it's this little old lady, a sweet old lady. I'm like, man, I think I didn't, I'm thankful I didn't honk my horn or, you know, act anyway. I just, I, it's, I'm slow to learn those things. But anyways, listen, women, younger women, middle-aged women, if you want to be that sweet old lady later, man, start by being sweet now. Start by being kind and just develop those qualities now because it'll carry on into adult. You're not going to all of a sudden, poof, now you're the sweet old lady. If you've been, if you've been a, you know, a very difficult person or you know, a grumbler, complainer, whatever, whatever, you fill in the blank, you're not all of a sudden going to change as you get older. It's, it's what's... You're building that into your, into your character, into your life. And so if you want to start those things, you're thinking forward, at, man, I want to change my, I want to be a different person later on, start working on it now in your own life, in your own character. Then Titus was to, uh, excuse me, the older woman, not Titus, was to teach the younger women to be patient, excuse me, to be obedient to their own husbands that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The word obedient, it means to be subordinate to their own husbands, not to men in general, to their own husbands. This is the context of a marriage. And if you think of a marriage, a marriage is a mission. And, and, and there's one thing that's common in missions. There's, there needs to be a leader, and there needs to be people that are submitted to this leader to, to accomplish this mission. If any of you have been in the military, I mean, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The military has missions. And if you're on a mission, a military mission, there's chaos when there's more than one leader and they're leading in two other directions. You need one person to lead. Otherwise, the mission is just, it's not going to get accomplished. Or when there's insubordination, man, in the military, a mission's at risk. There's, there's got to be somebody following, somebody submitted to whoever's leading. It's the same with the mission of a marriage. Now, God's the one that ordained the husband to be the head in the marriage. I can't, I can't change, I can't make it politically correct. God has ordained the husband to be the head in a marriage. Is that because the husband, the man is better? Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> it's not because he's better. It's not because he's more superior or more spiritual. In fact, to be frank, let's just be honest with you, there's some women that are much better leaders than their husbands. 
There's some women that have a, a better head on their shoulders than their husbands. So what do you do if you're married and you're this, this woman that's, you, you really got it all together, your husband's a dud, you know, you're just like, he's a lump of clay, you know, <laughs> what do you do? Uh, or the opposite, what do you do when your husband's a tyrant and, and he's just like, he's just like, you know, trying to keep you under his thumb? Well, there are examples in the Bible. I know maybe it sounds cliche, but man, the Bible has answers for our life today. And one of the examples I can think of right away is, is and probably because I was reading it not too long ago, the story of Abigail and Nabal. Nabal, a fool. His wife, a very wise, very prudent woman. What did she do in this situation? Well, go read the Bible. You know, you can learn from examples in the Bible. And she's not the only one. There's other examples in the Bible. There's also scriptures like 2 Peter that tells you, what, what, what do you do when you're in a situation and, and your husband's a dud or a tyrant? Or what, what, what do you do? How do you, how, do you, how do you navigate that? And then, again, this is older women teaching the younger women. They've got some practical advice from their own lives. You know, there's practical examples of the godly women who are discipling you. So there's, there's things there that you can make yourself available or avail in those kind of situations. I mentioned earlier that I believe firmly scripture shows that the husband, in the context of the marriage, of a particular marriage, God has ordained the man, the husband, to be the leader in that marriage. Why would he do that? Well, the only thing I can think of is that the marriage of a man and a wife is really, it's a picture of the bride, of the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. And a church that is unsubmitted to Jesus Christ, it's a very poor example of the relationship Christ has with his bride. It's a, it's, they set a very poor example. Likewise, some marriages set a very poor example of the relationship of Christ and his bride. So now Titus is to move on to some other people to teach, and that's the young men. Verse 7. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Now notice that he says likewise. That likewise, really, it connects with all the stuff that he's been telling before. Because if you look at this list, you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, There's some, hold the bus. The guy's only got one thing wrong with them, or one thing that they need to do, and, and that's to, uh, to be sober-minded, because you'll see that here in a minute. That's the only thing? No, 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 no. All those other things, obviously they're not going to be a wife, but all those other things, they, they apply too. The principles apply to all of us. It connects what follows before. So it's not like the young men only have one issue to be concerned about. So Titus was to teach the young men to be sober-minded. Again, that comes from that same Greek word as temperate, for the older men and discreet for the younger women. Thayer's says this, Thayer's is a Greek dictionary, it's to exercise self-control and to curb one's passions. But it has this other, this, just this other thing I thought was kind of interesting, but also it's to put a moderate estimate upon oneself, think of oneself soberly, and I think of humility in that situation. And if you think of young men, man, they, they've just... You know, the, the world's in front of them, and they're there to conquer, and, you know, there's nothing, their lives are going to live forever, and they, they've got ultimate, infinite strength. And, you know, there's just young men 
generally speaking. They're just, they got a lot of, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but not always a lot of wisdom. And no offense to anybody here, but. And so, put a moderate estimate upon yourself. Exercise self-control. Curb one's passion. Don't think of yourself too highly. There's a translation that says, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. Another one says, in the same way, urge the young men to behave carefully, taking life seriously. I, I just, you know, having been a young man, I just think back and I can remember some of the stuff I did. And I'm like, yeah, I should have, I probably should have, you know, read Titus more or followed it more as a young man. And then Paul tells something to Titus himself there in verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. He says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Man, what an opportunity for Titus to be a, a good role model to even the younger men on the island of Crete in these different churches. What, what a good opportunity to be an example because there's a lot of bad role models out there for young men, even today in our culture. A lot of bad role models out there. What a, what a, what a blessing to see a godly young man, a role model. And not only for the younger guys, but to be a godly example to everyone of what a young man could be like in a wicked world. And right away, my mind thinks back to Joseph. You know, Joseph as, as a young man in Egypt. And, and man, how, how he lived a godly life, even in the midst of temptations, even in the midst of all the, the junk that happened in his life. Man, what a godly example. And then not too long ago, we just finished the book of Daniel, reading about the young man Daniel in, in Babylon. Man, what a godly young man. And, and it carried on through his life. So, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity or reverence or incorruptibility. You say, you know, you, you might have an understanding what integrity means, but I was in the military, I was in the Coast Guard, and, and uh, whenever I hear the word integrity, I always think of watertight integrity. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but basically it means no leaks. If you're on a ship or you're in a submarine, man, you don't want leaks, okay? You, you don't want water coming in, basically. You want, you don't want, any, you want everything to be watertight on a ship. And uh, watertight integrity means that there's no leaks. And leaks come from gaps and holes, and holes and bulkheads and you name it. Um, so in your doctrine, showing integrity. And what I think, when I think of that, I think of this. In your doctrine, don't let there be any gaps or holes. And what I mean by that is let your actions match the words that you're saying. The way you're living, let, let your life match what you teach. Because some people can look at this beautiful ship of your faith, and then they see all these leaks, and they go, well, how's it working for you? It looks like your ship's sinking, <laughs> you know? So don't let there be any anything in your life that doesn't match what you teach. And then he says, sound speech, excuse me, <coughs> sound speech that cannot be condemned. The second half of verse 8, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. 
the fact of the matter is, as believers, people are going to say evil things about us, okay? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you're living a godly life, especially in the workplace, you know, or <clears throat> school situation or some kind of social situation, you're living a godly life and, and the people around you aren't saved, you're going to get some false accusations. The point is, don't let them be true accusations, you know. Don't let them be actually just in what they're saying. Let them be false accusations. And then there's another group that Paul was to teach, and that was the bond servants starting there in verse 9. Now, in the Roman Empire, a large majority of the citizens or the, the people in Rome were slaves. Slavery was common in the Roman Empire. And so many of these slaves were getting saved. Some of their masters were getting saved, but also some of the slaves were getting saved. So what do you do when you're a born-again believer, but you're a slave still. Well, I mean, how do you live? How do you navigate that? It may not seem that common for us now, but, you know, I always think about in the workplace. I'm not a slave. I'm getting paid, so it's not quite the same. But, you know, there's principles there that apply too. But look at verse 9. It says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all fidelity. The one thing that jumped out at me was not pilfering. That's kind of an interesting word. It means to embezzle or to keep back something which belongs to another. Why didn't Paul just say, don't steal? Because <laughs> generally that's stealing, right? Taking what doesn't belong to you or embezzling. But you see, I think he's kind of explaining in a way that a slave could understand. Because if you think about it, here you're this poor slave and this rich master entrusts you with stuff. Hey, he can afford it. <laughs> He's rich. I'm a slave. So you can kind of justify, you know, keeping back or, you know, kind of cheating in a little way or something. It's the same sentiment that people use today for insurance companies. Hey, they're big. They can afford it. I, you know, I, so a few years, no, it's been a lot, of, quite a few years ago, um, we were on a vacation. We were out of town anyways, and we came back to our house, and here we had found out from our neighbors that there was a great big hailstorm. They were like either quarter or ping-pong-sized hailstones. They did a lot of damage. And so I called up our insurance agent, and we ended up getting a roof replaced on our house. I had two cars parked in front of the house. Both of them got totaled out by the insurance company just because they had all this hail damage. And, uh, you know, they were still, I mean, there was nothing... I, at that time, even now, we don't drive new cars, so it's like it wasn't that big of a deal. But I had full coverage, so they gave me, you know, they gave me insurance. They totaled it out. Still drivable, just you know, they got little dings, and uh, and so, anyways, that year was like, man, it was a banner year. We're getting some money <laughs> from the insurance companies. Like finally, you know, all the stuff we've been paying in, we're getting a little bit back. That's awesome. Um, but I remember going to the insurance adjuster, and and. Uh, he was looking at the car and stuff, and he goes, yeah, okay. And he says, yeah, we're going to give you this much for, and stuff. And I said, I said, well, you must be busy. He goes, well, the guy that just was here before you, he says, that guy came up with his car. He goes, you can tell that he had taken a ball-peen hammer, and he used the ball end of his hammer, and he was just banging stuff all over the car. And, and I said, you could tell that? He goes, well, he goes, usually you don't get dings on the lower side of your doors. <laughs> the guy had just banged up his car everywhere. <laughs> the insurance guy, yeah. Hail doesn't usually, you know, come sideways and stuff. So, 
So that was kind of interesting. But that's the sentiment. Hey, these guys can afford it, you know, so I'm going to just, yeah. Paul says, if you're a slave, man, and you've got this rich man, don't, don't embezzle from them. Be a godly example to them, showing all good fidelity. That means showing good, uh, uh, good faith, being faithful, being trustworthy, being reliable. Now, if you're in that situation, be the best slave that you can be. Verse 10, second half, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Man, when, when you're living your life according to your faith, man, you're adorning the gospel. What does adorning mean? It's the Greek word kosmeo, and I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on words, but I think it means cosmetics. Listen, I said earlier, the gospel is attractive. You and I, we don't have to make the gospel attractive. What Jesus Christ did, I couldn't even think of something like that. The, the, what Jesus Christ did and how he did it, it's beautiful, what Christ has done for us. The gospel is attractive. But when your and my life matches the gospel, when it actually is being lived out in our life, man, how much more beautiful. It's like a beautiful woman putting on cosmetics. They don't really need it, but man, it, it just adds. The gospel's attractive when our lives match what we believe and profess and makes it more beautiful. Why? Because people see with their own eyes how the gospel works. Every, you know, not everybody knows the gospel, but people know about Christians. They know some of the concepts of Christianity and stuff. And to see it actually work out in your life, you know, and especially when going through difficult things, I think of the, the believers in Ukraine right now. You know, everybody's suffering equally. It's not like it's just the unbelievers that are getting, you know, losing their houses. Christians are losing their houses. They're probably losing loved ones. They're going through the same situation. And so people that maybe know they're Christians are looking at them going, look, look at their, their peace and look at how they handle all this stuff. Man, that's, 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 there's something there. I, I want to know more about it because it's attractive. And so that's how we make our the gospel in our lives attractive when people see how does it live out in our own lives now last week we went over Paul's criteria for selecting pastors and elders and there's some obvious exceptions you know uh, in the requirements like for husbands you know not everybody's a husband here thankfully um, uh, but there's not anything in those principles that I brought up last week that a person could say well you know that doesn't apply to me because I'm not a pastor you know, I can I can get drunk. I'm not a pastor. I can be you know I can be rude or impatient. I'm not a pastor. None of those as a believer we can say hey that doesn't apply to me right. I mean just that's just the facts. Likewise with these principles. And I was thinking about that. Why are certain principles addressed to certain people? I don't know. I really don't. Um, I'm not a sociologist or anything. I I've not dug uh, deep enough. Yet maybe the next time we go through Titus, I'll have a I'll have an answer for you. But I don't know right now. But with the obvious exceptions, because there's some obvious exceptions, and you know, not everybody's a slave, obviously, especially in our culture today. But there's really nothing that I can say. Hey, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not in that I'm not in that category. I can just ignore that. You know, none of those. In all of these things we read, it applies to us. It applies to us. So the rest of this chapter now, beginning with verse 11, speaks about our motivation for living this way. Verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and uh, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, each one of us have been saved by grace. None of us are more special than anybody else. We've all been saved by grace. What is grace? It's unmerited favor. None of us deserve salvation. God in his grace offers it to each one of us. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28. He says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all the same at the foot of the cross, man. There's no, there's no hierarchy or anything. So we've all been saved by grace, but here's the question. Have we all been taught by grace? We've all been saved by grace. There's just, if you're a believer, you're saved by grace. Plain, I mean, there's, nothing, no, there's no other category. But not everybody's been taught by grace. We want to be taught by grace. What do I mean by that? You see, grace affects our relationship to others. When you start to understand that you're no better than anybody else, that God has saved you by grace, there's nothing that you've done to earn your salvation, and you realize and you start to really appreciate God's grace in your life, it affects you to a point where you start extending grace to others that don't deserve your patience or they don't deserve your whatever you, you, know, whatever you want to say. It's like they don't deserve it, but you know what? Neither do I. And so... Being taught by grace is having that greater understanding of it in your own life, and then you, it reflects on how you treat other people. Grace affects our relationships to others. Grace also affects our relationship to the Lord. Man, he gave his life for me. Why wouldn't I want to live for him? He says they're teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Being taught by grace means to reject, to renounce, to disown ungodliness and worldly lusts. Because I have to? No, because I want to. Because I love my Savior. When we understand God's grace out of love and thankfulness, we want to live our lives soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Again, not that we have to, it's because we want to. And especially in light of this ungodly age we're living in, and you know, I, I just seeing more and more ungodliness, here we are looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's speaking about the rapture of the church, the, the, the time when Christ returns for his bride. Man, that's coming soon. And, you know, I look at the things that are going on, and, and man, I, I don't like what's going on. I, I look at the geopolitical stuff, and I go, man, it's kind of starting to match prophecy. But that just tells me that Jesus Christ is coming back that much sooner. So I just, that blessed hope. And then he says this in verse 14, speaking about Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He laid down his life for us. He redeemed you and I. Well, that means that he paid a ransom, basically, for our souls that we were unable to pay for. He paid it with his own blood on the cross. 
And his goal was to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. This morning, I pray that you're zealous for good works, that, you have, that you're being taught by grace in your life. You're understanding what that means and that, that your life is starting to match what you believe and what you profess. Because when you and I do that, it makes the gospel that much more attractive to those around us. There's a lot of ugliness in the world right now. And having a beautiful Christian, a person that's living according to the principles of the gospel, that's, that's something that's irresistible in this world. And so then Paul closes this chapter that says, and he says this, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Again, I think Titus was a young man, and so there might have been people that are like, who are you? You're just, you know, you're wet behind the ears, you know, you little snot-nosed little guy. You know, those are the things I heard. I was the youngest in my family. So <laughs> anyways, speak all these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So how do we make the gospel attractive? By living our lives in such a way that the gospel, it matches, that our lives, excuse me, match what we believe and what we practice. We're going to go ahead and have communion this morning. I'll invite the worship team to come on up and, and get ready.